The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Envisioning the Future of Hyperlipidemia Management, How Can We Leverage PCSK9 Targeting Therapies to Prevent Primary and Secondary Cardiovascular Events? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash tbj860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Norman Lepore. I'm a clinical professor of medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, attending cardiologist at the Smith Cedar sinai Heart Institute, co-director of cardiovascular imaging at Westside Medical Imaging, and director of clinical research at Westside Medical Associates of Los Angeles. Welcome to this educational activity on leveraging PCSK9 targeting therapies to prevent primary and secondary cardiovascular events. So let's ask ourselves, why aren't we getting to goal in the vast majority of patients with hypercholesterolemia? We know that high cholesterol or dyslipidemia is common in the United States, affecting 25 to 30% of the population. Recent changes in how LDL cholesterol is used in cholesterol treatment guidelines have created confusion. Stands are very effective for LDL cholesterol lowering, but may be insufficient for some patients, particularly those with very high LDL cholesterols and those at high and very high risk. Poor adherence to statin therapy is common. Some patients may be non-adherent because they don't know why statins are used. Other patients may be non-adherent because of perceived adverse effects. PCSK9 targeting therapies may improve adherence to lipid-lowering treatment, but are only used by about 3% of eligible patients. So let's look at the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, we call NHANES, and to look at the prevalence of elevated cholesterol, there are at least 31.6% of patients who we would say have high cholesterol, high LDL cholesterol. That would be levels in excess of 130 milligrams per deciliter. So we know that there's a high prevalence of elevated LDL cholesterols in the population. There are also patients who have very high LDL levels And this may be caused by a genetic mutation called heterozygote for familial hyperlipidemia. These are patients with very high LDL levels at birth and will often present to your office with LDL levels in excess of 190 milligrams per deciliter. This should raise your suspicion that this is a genetic mutation. And as a genetic mutation, it's particularly dangerous because it means that these patients have had their LDL cholesterols elevated from birth and therefore their arteries have been bathed with very high LDL levels from that point. Much rare would be the homozygote for hyperlipidemia, and that patient would present with very high LDL levels in excess of 500 milligrams per deciliter. So how are we doing in terms of utilizing statins? Well, this is from the Pinnacle Registry between 2013 and 2017. The Pinnacle Registry is an outpatient cardiovascular practice registry. We do see that the use of statins has increased somewhat from 2013 out to 2017. And you can look at the median utilization of statins is somewhere about 75% of clinical practices. But look at the spread. There are many practices where only about 50% of patients are being deployed statins. And what's even more sobering is that so many of these patients who are on statin therapies have not had their lipid-lowering therapies targeted to goal. Well, we've been a little bit confused as we've developed new guidelines. Before 2013, we actually had specific LDL targets to shoot for when using our lipid-lowering therapies. This changed in 2013, 
where instead of having a target level to achieve, we actually were given goals in terms of when to initiate lipid-lowering therapy. So no target in terms of achieving an LDL, but targets in terms of when we should use lipid-lowering therapies such as statins. And in 2018, LDL threshold levels for treatment were reinitiated. So here's the most recent AHA ACC cholesterol guidelines. We're looking at primary prevention. Now, what's important is that the ACC AHA calculator, which is used to determine your 10-year risk of an atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease risk or lifetime risk, really doesn't work for patients who are under 20 years, but more important, doesn't really work for patients who are over 75 years of age. Now, what's important is, as I mentioned before, those with LDLs over 190 milligrams per deciliter, they really constitute a high-risk cohort where high-intensity statins should be initiated right off the bat. Those patients who are considered diabetics, they should be receiving moderate-intensity statins because we really do call diabetes a cardiovascular disease equivalent. Also, we may want to consider diabetics between 40 and 75 years of age candidates for high-intensity therapy. And let's not ignore those patients who are 75 years of age or over just because they're not on the ACC AHA calculator. We need to also assess those patients for cardiovascular risk and aggressive lipid treatment because as you get older, you're more likely to have a cardiovascular event. Now, one thing that's really important that the newer 2018 guidelines do is they provide us these ASCVD risk enhancers. Look at family history of premature ASCVD patients who have persistently elevated LDL cholesterol despite treatment over 160 milligrams per deciliter, chronic kidney disease, EGFRs less than 60, or those patients with proteinuria, metabolic syndrome, women who have had stressed metabolic issues such as preeclampsia, premature menopause, those patients with inflammatory diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, patients with elevated triglycerides, patients with elevated HSCRPs, lipoprotein levels over 50 milligrams per deciliters or elevated ApoB and reduced ankle brachial indices. These are all very important as we assess our patients for risk. And I do say that it's very complicated. And finally, coronary calcium screening will help with your assessment of coronary risk. It's underutilized. Basically, an abnormal reading would be a calcium score greater than zero. So, The coronary calcium score does a really good job of helping to assess our need for lipid-lowering therapy and actually personalize the care of patients. Let's now look at clinical ASCVD. Right away, if you have clinical ASCVD, that means you've had perhaps an MI, a stroke, a TIA, a coronary stent placement, you have angina, you have significant disease seen on, let's say, a carotid duplex or a coronary CT, we would consider you to be high risk. So here we're really talking about Goals of therapy being at least a 50% reduction of LDL cholesterol from baseline levels, as well as an LDL below 70 milligrams per deciliter. And if you can't achieve that with a statin and or azetamide, that's where we really want to consider in a big way the use of PCSK9 prevention therapies. And I think this goes whether the patients are less than 75 years of age or over 75 years of age. We really want to be aggressive in these high and very high-risk patient cohorts in terms of achieving very low LDL levels. So it's really important for us to get used to having patients with LDLs in the 20s and 30 milligrams per deciliter. And we'll show you later why you should be very comfortable with that. Who's that high-risk patient? 
The high-risk patient would be the patient with personal history of coronary vascular disease, a recent acute coronary syndrome, MI, ischemic stroke, TIA, PAD, or history of bypass or PCI, or that patient who we think may have a heterozygote for hyperlipidemia with LDLs of 190 milligrams or above. And those patients who are 40 years of age and who have a ACCAHA risk calculator greater than or equal to 20%. Who is that very high-risk cohort? It's the patient with a history of multiple major ASCVD events. Also, you can have one major ASCVD event as well as having at least two of these comorbidities, which include being a heterozygote, a revascularization, hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, smoking history, residual LDL, greater than or equal to 100 milligrams per deciliter despite maximally tolerated statin and azetamide. Now, I actually like the ESC, EAS, European dyslipidemia guidelines. They use a different risk assessment called SCORE, which actually looks at a 10-year risk, not of an ASCVD event, but actually a fatal cardiovascular disease event. And let's look what they do. If you look at the very high-risk cohort, and they're a little bit more liberal in terms of defining this very high-risk cohort, documented CVD, unequivocal CV, atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease on imaging, such as coronary CTA or ultrasound, multivessel disease, severe chronic kidney disease. And if you have this score of 10% or greater, they actually recommend LDL treatment goals of at least 50% from baseline and an LDL less than 55 milligrams per deciliter. They really put more patients under the tent in terms of who would be considered very high risk and more aggressive LDL treatment goals. Now let's look at two case reports. Janelle, who's considered high risk, 44 years old, TIA three years ago, hypertensive, LDL of 200 milligrams per deciliter. We're not sure if Janelle's actually heterozygote. We'd like to know more about her family history of elevated cholesterol and family history of accelerated coronary vascular events or even her genetic markers for being a heterozygote. Where Richard is very high risk, age 67, diabetic, had an MI, PCI with stent placement three years ago. He's got heart failure, class two, and grade three chronic kidney disease. And you can see hypertensive. His LDL cholesterol is 150 milligrams per deciliter. So we're clearly statin-centric in terms of our approach, but we really shouldn't stop at statins because, first of all, patients can often not achieve LDL treatment goals with statins alone. Patients may not be compliant with statins, and they may not tolerate very high levels of statin treatments. So therefore, if we are not able to achieve those guidelines in this very high-risk patient cohort and their LDLs remain above 70 milligrams per deciliter, we should be very aggressive about deploying agents such as azitamide, which really only provides limited LDL reduction, but certainly consider the use of PCSK9 affecting agents in terms of really being able to achieve optimal lipid-lowering therapy and LDL results. We know, for instance, in terms of the oral medicines, ethyl, which is really geared more towards triglyceride reduction, only lowers LDL by about 5 to 10%. Benpidoic acid reduces LDL cholesterol by about 20%. Same with azetamide, whereas you have the ability with statins to lower LDL cholesterol depending on dosing between 40 and 60%. Well, now we have the injectable medications. And this includes the PCSK9 inhibitor monoclonal antibodies, alirocumab, and evolocumab, and the PCSK9 silencing RNA and glycerin. And they're able to achieve LDL reductions in the 50 to 60% range. 
PCSK9 inhibitors do this with a twice a month injection, whereas Enclisteran achieves this with a twice a year subcutaneous injection. So you can see by this graphic that we have the tools available even to take patients with LDLs as high as 200 milligrams per deciliter and reduce the high and very high risk levels mentioned by the guidelines from the European Society and the ACC AHA. So what's the story? Why are we not deploying those tools? So the Pinnacle Registry actually showed that after the 2013 guidelines, perhaps because of confusion, statin utilization actually was reduced, but has recovered some since that period of time. Even with the older guidelines, we still were only prescribing statins in fewer than 75% of patients who were eligible for therapy. And we know that statin use is suboptimal, even in patients who are clearly at high risk. We're really not able to achieve guideline-based therapy in a large minority of patients. And troublingly, there are wide variations between different practices in terms of appropriate prescriptions of lipid-lowering therapies. So we know that compliance long-term is a problem. We know, for instance, from the VA healthcare system, Nearly 36% of patients had less than 90% adherence to statins, the level associated with highest survival, because if you're not taking the statin, you're not lowering LDL, and you're exposing the vasculature to LDL cholesterol. The Gould Registry found that there were a number of patients who didn't even know that they should be taking cholesterol-lowering agents and didn't know their cholesterol levels. There are so many patients where cholesterol levels are not being assessed by their physicians, and many patients don't take statins because they're unaware of their cholesterol goals. They underestimate the benefits of cholesterol lowering, very concerned about cost and side effects. Even to this day, when I talk about statin therapy, I have to spend time and educate my patients regarding some of the fake news out in the lay literature regarding these. So what have we learned about statin intolerance? We find that patients will present with particularly myalgias about 5 to 20% of the time they take statin therapy. And this may or may not be associated with increases in serum creatinine kinase levels. The GAUS-3 trial was a trial with evolocumab where we actually wanted to see the effect of evolocumab as monotherapy in patients who truly were statin intolerant. So there was a run-in phase of this trial. And in this run-in phase, patients were either exposed to 20 milligrams of atorvastatin for eight weeks, then sequenced to placebo for eight weeks, and they didn't know which one they were taking. In order to get into the trial, they had to have symptoms of statin tolerance on the atorvastatin and not on the placebo. What we found was there were a large number of patients who were so statin tolerant by their claim that they actually had developed myalgias to the placebo and not to atorvastatin. So what we found is that this whole patient population of statin intolerance is really a mixed bag in terms of who really is statin intolerant. But that being said, if a patient thinks they're statin intolerant, they're not going to comply with statin therapy. So let's come back to Janelle and to Richard. So you can see that Janelle's been prescribed at least four medications, moderate intensity or suvastatin because she was intolerant of high-intensity statin. So we wanted to put her on the high-intensity statin, but she developed side effects. Richard, by virtue of his diabetes and cardiovascular events and such, he's been on high-intensity statin and a whole variety of medicines. Richard's on nine daily medications. And we know that the more pills you tell somebody to take, 
the less likely they're going to be adherent to really any of the treatments. So what's important is that we achieve guideline-based medical treatments, but try to emphasize of those medicines which really have the highest impact in terms of their cardiovascular condition. So lowering treatment burden may actually facilitate patient adherence to lipid-lowering therapy. You can see that adherence goes up as you reduce the number of times a patient has to take a dose. So as we mentioned, we have the tools in our toolbox to effectively in a very big way, reduce LDL cholesterol. From moderate intensity statins, 30%, high intensity statins, 50%, PCSK9 inhibitors, an additional 60%, high intensity statin plus azetamide, 65%, PCSK9 and high intensity statins, 75%. And then you combine a PCSK9 inhibitor plus high intensity statin and azetamide, you're able to achieve 85% reduction of LDL cholesterol. Let's talk about PCSK9. PCSK9 is a protein that's synthesized by the hepatocyte. We really don't understand at this point if it has any positive effects. But what this protein does do, it gets in the way of recycling the LDL receptor. It reduces the efficiency of LDL removal from the circulation by reducing the number of available LDL receptors on the surface of the hepatocyte to remove LDL cholesterol. This is important, and I'd like you to focus on the red horizontal line. The red horizontal line represents the threshold for manifesting atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease. So when you look at that threshold and you look below at the age, you can actually see at what age, depending on what condition, somebody would manifest an ASCVD event. On the left, you look at the homozygote. These are folks with LDLs in the 4, 5, 6, 7, 800 range. They can manifest ASCVD events in their teens. If you're heterozygote, you can see where the blue line meets the red line. You start manifesting the events in your 30s. However, if we do what we call bending the curve and we actually initiate lipid-lowering therapy, we can actually bend that curve and change the threshold for events from your 30s out to your 50s. And if you look at those patients who are wild-type, these are the -the run-of-the-mill non-genetic mutation people with LDLs of 120 milligrams per deciliter, you can see the same thing. You start manifesting cardiovascular events in your mid-60s, but you could bend the curve and really postpone the manifestations of ASCVD. The green line represents those patients who have a protective mutation. They actually make less PCSK9. And what's interesting about these patients, they are at a much lower risk of an ASCVD event by virtue of having a genetic mutation where there's less PCSK9 protein that is synthesized. And these patients generally have lower LDL cholesterols. Now let's take a look at the PCSK9 target in this 3D animation. In normal hepatocytes, LDL-C receptors function like hooks, catching circulating LDL-C to remove and metabolize it. The hepatocytes make an enzyme called PCSK9 that interferes with the uptake of LDL-C from the circulation. PCSK9 can bind to the LDL-C receptor, and the receptor can still catch LDL-C. When the LDL-C receptor complex undergoes endocytosis, it is metabolized with the LDL-C. This decreases the LDL-C receptor density on the hepatocyte and reduces the efficiency of LDL-C removal from the circulation, which causes higher levels of LDL-C in the circulation. PCSK9 inhibitors, such as alirocumab and evolocumab, bind PCSK9 before it binds to the LDL-C receptors. 
This protects the receptors during endocytosis, increases receptor density, and reduces LDLC levels in the circulation. Because they wear off, injections are required every two to four weeks. SIRNA therapeutics, like Inclisiran, prevent hepatocytes from synthesizing PCSK9 and last longer. Now let's look at some of the PCSK9 inhibitor data in terms of its ability to reduce LDL cholesterol. And what we're seeing is significant LDL reduction in the 60% range out to 12 months in patients who are on maximally tolerated statin therapy. So we see in real life, it does a pretty good job in terms of LDL reduction by virtue of compliance. Not quite as good as we saw in the clinical trials, but still, I think, pretty good real-world compliance. We see that from real-world studies. About 16% of patients using PCSK9ers were not adherent to therapy. That certainly is much better than we see with statin therapy, but we're still not at 100% compliance. And we await the real-world studies with Inclisiran to be completed in the 2024-2027 range to see the real-world responses to Inclisiran by virtue of its being a much less frequently administered drug. Are very low LDL levels safe? There is no data that suggests, at least over the course of the clinical trials, and the outcome trials were over two years duration, basically for every two milligram per deciliter reduction of LDL, you're reducing cardiovascular event rate risk by 1%. So if you're reducing LDL cholesterol by 40, 50%, you're starting to achieve event reduction in the 20 to 25% range. Looking at the Odyssey outcome trial with alirocumab in this particular curve, and you could see that even at very low LDL levels of 15 milligrams per deciliter, you're really able to reduce cardiovascular events. We can see when the LDL levels are higher than 50 milligrams per deciliter, we're starting to see major adverse cardiovascular events sneaking up, which is kind of consistent with what we've known. That lower is better when it comes to LDL cholesterol. How about cognitive issues? Well, there's clear data that very low LDL levels, even LDL levels below 20 milligrams per deciliter, are not associated with cognitive decline. Whether it's executive planning, executive organization, executive divided attention. That being said, these are population-based studies, and there are exceptions to the rule. But on a population-wide basis, we just don't see issues related to safety with very low LDL levels. How do silencing RNAs differ from PCSK9 inhibitors? Silencing RNA can be used to block the production of PCSK9 and has a much longer effect. Inclisiran is a silencing RNA that inhibits the synthesis of PCSK9. Inclisiran contains an RNA strand that's complementary to PCSK9 mRNA. Injection of inclisiran leads to the assembly in the cytosol of an RNA-induced silencing complex called RISC, which degrades PCSK9 mRNA for a prolonged period of time, inhibiting production of PCSK9. So how does silencing RNA inhibit PCSK9 differ from the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies? Let's find out in this 3D animation. Before diving into the MOA of siRNA therapeutics, let's explore some foundational knowledge to better understand siRNA. Within a cell, the nucleus sends orders for various proteins needed by the body via mRNA to the ribosomes, where the cell manufactures proteins. 
This process can be interrupted by RNA interference, where the order for a protein is stopped by degrading the mRNA to prevent the protein from being produced. This process is known as silencing the gene. To treat hyperlipidemia, siRNA therapeutics such as inclisiran block the synthesis of PCSK9. It works by unwinding and unloading its instructions into the corresponding RNA-induced silencing complex in the cytoplasm. By doing so, inclisiran targets and silences the mRNA for PCSK9 and stops the orders for PCSK9 from reaching the ribosomes. Less PCSK9 means greater LDL-C receptor efficiency, leading to lower LDL-C levels in the circulation. Because of its long-lasting effect, inclisiran may be a potential solution to poor treatment adherence. So what do we mean when we say very effective in terms of LDL reduction? Well, let's look at some of the clinical trial data. The Orion 10 trial, as well as the Orion 11 trial, were trials that were to evaluate the effectiveness of inclisiran to lower LDL cholesterols. One was basically performed in the United States and one in Europe. And we found that LDL reduction at about the 510-day mark was around 50%. And what you can see in the graphic in terms of LDL levels, we see a rather consistency to the LDL reduction with inclisiran over time. So do PCSK9 targeting therapies reduce cardiovascular events? Well, we saw actually with olirocumab in the Odyssey Outcomes trial, with evolocumab in the Fourier trial, these trials lasted between 2.8 and 2.2 years in terms of median follow-up, large population, that there was a statistically significant reduction of LDL levels, but more importantly, a reduction in terms of clinical events. There was an absolute reduction of between 1.5 and 1.6% in terms of the major adverse cardiovascular events with relative risk reduction that were statistically significant between 14 and 20%. With inclisiran, although we have the Orion 4 cardiovascular outcome trial pending, we do get a hint from both the Orion 10 and the Orion 11 trial of being able to also reduce cardiovascular events. But we're now awaiting the very large Orion 4 cardiovascular outcome trial with a study duration of about five years where we expect to hopefully confirm that LDL reduction with the silencing RNA reduces major adverse cardiovascular events. And I want to emphasize in all these trials, patients were already receiving maximally tolerated statin therapy. All right, so how did Janelle do with her, with only being able to tolerate a intermediate potency statin as well as Richard, who was on a high intensity statin? Well, I think that our goal for Janelle is not met by virtue of the 100 milligram per deciliter. You know, my goal for Janelle would be to achieve an LDL level less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. So that means another 30% reduction. So let's say we add azetamide, we'll get another 15, 20% reduction. We're still not at our goal. So Janelle is probably going to need to be on a PCSK9 effecting therapy in order to really be at the guideline-based treatment. And how about Richard? Remember I told you I was predisposed to the European guidelines, in his case, would recommend LDLs less than 55 milligrams per deciliter by virtue of his being very high risk, diabetic, MI, chronic kidney disease, hypertensive, etc. So now what we do have available with the PCSK9 injections is generally they're given every two weeks, but they can pack a bit more drug in the subcutaneous injection and actually have an algorithm for once a month dosing. The problem with the once a month dosing is you start introducing 
a greater variability in terms of the LDL reducing effects. As you're approaching the next injection, you've lost a lot of the potency of the PCSK9 inhibitor and LDL levels are actually going up. So your mean LDL levels are not as tightly controlled when you're using a once a month injection uh, versus the every two week injection of a PCSK9 inhibitor. With an agent that has a much longer effective half-life, like in Clisaran, you're actually having much less variability during the course of treatment with fewer injections. So why is this important? Well, we want consistency in terms of LDL reducing effect, kind of similar to what you think with blood pressure. The same thing with LDL treatment. We want to consistently reduce circulating LDL. So we reduce the bathing of the arterial structures by LDL and actually have better cardiovascular event impact. If you really want to motivate patients to take their lipid-lowering therapies, show them a picture of an artery, a carotid artery, or their calcium score, or coronary CT, and you start talking about the potential for plaque regression. I look at atherosclerosis as cancer of the arteries. And we know that patients who have cancer, the first thing they say is, get that cancer out of me. And the same thing could be said with atherosclerotic coronary vascular disease. You have the ability to actually lead to regression, but regression is going to take achieving LDL levels, probably less than 50 milligrams to do that. But we have the data. We have the data with statins. We have the data with PCSK9, and we have some data within Clisteran that really shows a very aggressive lipid-lowering therapy that we can actually get plaque regression. And I will tell you that there is no single part of a discussion I have with a patient that has more effectiveness in terms of their accepting the therapy and complying the therapy is you show them what their disease looks like and you show them that they can actually get plaque regression. So who's most likely to benefit from PCSK9 targeted therapy? Well, obviously those patients who have higher residual cholesterols who are treated with statin therapies. If you're having modest reductions of LDL, remember there is biological variability with every treatment, including statins. There are patients who will have very high levels of LDL reduction, patients who will have very modest LDL reduction. So some practical insights for clinicians engaging patients in shared decision-making regarding PCSK9 targeting therapies. The PCSK9 targeting therapies have largely been investigated as an add-on, not a substitute for statin therapy, but certainly can be used as monotherapy for those patients who are particularly statin intolerant. Alirocumab and evolocumab are subcutaneous injections self-administered every two weeks covered by insurance under pharmacy benefits. Inclisran is also a subcutaneous injection, but it's generally administered every six months by a healthcare professional and covered by insurance under medical benefits. Fewer injections per year have the potential for increasing adherence to therapy. So I would say most of the time we're seeing these patients who are at risk who have had cardiovascular events at least twice a year. And we can actually time their visits to the office with providing them the inclisiran uh, subcutaneous injection. And obviously, this would confirm compliance with treatment. How can a silencing RNA medication have such long-lasting effects? Well, first off, the silencing RNA is highly specific for the hepatocyte and very specific for the particular mRNA and very effective at even low concentrations. Silencing RNAs are 100 to 1,000-fold more potent and longer-lasting than antisense oligodeoxyribonucleic acids, or ODNs, another approach to gene silencing that is prone to toxic off-target effects. 
Silencing RNAs are similar to the micro RNAs that regulate gene expression in normal physiology. And early studies showed that silencing RNAs were most effective in the liver, prompting studies that's therapeutic agents for a wide variety of liver-based diseases. Let's talk about safety of these drugs, both in clinical trial and as they've been utilized since 2015, are quite safe, quite easy to use. For enclisteran and alirocumab, you did see an increase in terms of injection site reactions. Most of these reactions are mild. I do tell patients that they may actually experience such a reaction. If it's mild, it'll dissipate. And in terms of other adverse events, we see for the most part that they're very similar to placebo. So what does the future hold for lipid-lowering treatments? We have potential for vaccinations and gene editing. Gene editing can be a slippery slope because while you edit with a gene may have effects that you can't anticipate. And so we're involved in these clinical trials as we always try to push a medical science to find more effective and safer treatments. So in conclusion, elevated LDL is the most important risk factor for cardiovascular events. We have the tools we need to reduce these risks, even in the patients at highest risk, and even those patients at the highest risk with very high LDL cholesterols. But as clinicians, we're not doing a very good job in providing these tools to our patients. Imagine what we could do from a public health impact if we could treat these patients effectively to guidelines. We have new silencing RNA therapies, profoundly reduce LDL levels, and reduce the burden of adherence to therapy. Silencing RNAs are the harbingers of a forthcoming era of therapies targeting the underlying genetics of LDL cholesterol. That concludes our discussion for today. Thank you very much for your attention and participating in this activity. This activity is certified by the University of Florida College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash tbj860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.